The bandwidth for this episode of the AR-15 Podcast is sponsored by the Firearms Radio Network, firearmsradio.tv. Welcome to episode number 125 of the AR-15 Podcast. I'm your host, Reed Snyder, and with me tonight is my co-host, Anthony Hardy. This is the podcast about your favorite black rifle. The show is for you, whether you're building your first AR or you've been building ARs for years. There is something we can all do to take our black rifle to the next level. Well, Anthony, how are you doing today? It's been a, a week or so since we've had you on the show. Yeah, I'm good, man. How about you, Reed? I'm hanging in there. Um, All right. Tonight, we're going to go ahead and uh, hit part three of our uh, Building an AR from Scratch series. But before we uh, trudge into our main topic, I wanted to remind everybody that Brownells helps make this show possible. So don't forget the Brownells with their 100% lifetime satisfaction guarantee is there for you anytime you have a problem. Like when you can't remove the taper pins from your new barrel to slip off the front side base, and you now have to find a new barrel. So, we- or if your uh, rear takedown pin detent happens, spring happens to um, get crushed by uh, an improper installation of, um, yeah, of your buffer tube. <laughs> well, there you go. See, this is very important. All this Brownells information that we're feeding you. So, um, you know, Anthony, now with the uh, the Brownells Edge program, you could have ordered a bag full of those. Uh, 52 cent, very inexpensive, uh, yep. springs and had them shipped to you for free. Yep. Uh, yep. And I, I, I should have, um, because I, but I hope I won't need another one. Um, I really hope I don't. <laughs> uh, yep. That's what I hope anyway. I got, I did get the, the new one that I got put in. No problem. We had a lot of good advice from our listeners on, uh, tapping it with a 440 screw and, uh, keeping the spring inside <laughs> so you don't have to worry about it. Um, but, uh, I didn't get to that. Didn't have time for that this past weekend. So I just got another cheap spring and stuffed it in there. Well, there you go. Well, so with that, we want to remind you that Brownells' new edge program is really kind of changing the face of firearms parts because you can now join the Brownells edge program, get free standard shipping on all your orders uh, you get advanced notice of some really awesome uh, special offers and discounts. You get discounts on two-day and overnight shipping, which really would have uh, helped you out if you couldn't have, if you didn't have that extra spring, wouldn't it, Anthony? And of course, they provide some free shipping when you have returns, uh, and with their 100% lifetime satisfaction guarantee, that happens from time to time. So we want to ask that when you do shop for your AR-15 parts at Brownells, that you go to our website and click on the link so that you can help our show out just a little bit by you getting out there and conducting some commerce. So, our main topic. Anthony, when was the last time you built an upper receiver? Um, Never. Never? Well, you never. are in for a treat, Anthony. I know. So, uh, tell me, have you been coveting any of the components that go into upper receivers? 
Uh, I really would like to have um, a new barrel, um, a new bolt carrier group, a new charging handle. Um, let's see, a new flash hider or compensator of some sort. Um, so, yeah, probably a whole new upper receiver. Well, I tell you what, this show is going to be for you. So, yep. um, well, I guess we need to start talking about the upper receiver by covering the receiver. So, I'm sure any of you that have seen Platoon or uh, any of the Vietnam era films where, uh, the uh, M16 is, uh, part and parcel to, uh, the action on the, the big screen, uh, are familiar with the old form upper receiver. It was an upper receiver that had a carry handle that was machined into the uh, upper. Well, I guess it would have been forged into the upper receiver. And uh, somewhere long after I got out, uh, an enterprising fellow or woman uh, decided uh, that there was a better way to do things, and uh, we came up with the flat-top upper receiver with a little bit of uh, Picatinny rail on it. So... That really kind of opened up the floodgates on what can be done with the NAR, and I think it might very well have been the thing that really catapulted the platform into its current level of popularity. So um, we find ourselves today with an enormous number of options for the upper receiver. Um, you know, I think as far as the variations, you can have basically two approaches. You've got the flat top upper and you've got an upper that still has the old A2 style handle. Um, I would not say that there are many people out there that are seeking the A2 style upper receiver. Uh, I, I have an interest in it only from a purely, um, what would that be? Nostalgic respect. So yeah. my only reason to have one would be to reformulate or rebuild uh, an A2 style uh, AR. But, you know, past that, I think you're, you're really going to find most of your examples in the market uh, are going to be flat top uppers. Um, when it comes to features in the receiver, I think really you're, you're going to be looking at uh, differences in your deflector, um, and your forward assist and your dust cover. Those are kind of the, the big, uh, features that you're going to find, uh, variations on. Um, I think a lot of people like the upper receiver without a forward assist. And there are some that like it without a dust cover. I think all of them have a deflector. However, I think that you'll find from uh, model to model, uh, different variations in how that deflector is, uh, uh, installed. Some of them are more aggressive, trying to, uh, make sure that you don't have any brass, uh, stuck in a collar. Uh, some of them are, uh, formed in very unique ways with the machining or milling or, uh, even just different inserts like the, uh, the Voltor, uh, upper. So you're always going to find a deflector, but I think it's going to be uh, within a, a short spectrum of uh, variations on that. 
You know, as far as the quality goes, you know, I think we're still at a place where you're differentiating between the uppers that are machined and the uppers that are billet or forged. I'm sorry. So, you know, I know that there are adherence to both schools. Uh, there are a lot of things that um, make them attractive, and then there are a few things that uh, people find uh, uh, opposition to. Um, you know, once we move on to those personal uh, tastes uh, and look at materials, uh, we, we see essentially a, a, a very limited range of options, whether it be the the lower, I believe, what is it, 6068 uh, and uh, 7075, uh, the two variations, and of course, correct me if I've gotten those wrong, but uh, you basically have two uh, types of aluminum that are being typically used in these uh, parts. Past that, I think that uh, you might find variations in coating, uh, of course, uh, the standard, uh, uh, what is it, type 3 hard anodizing is uh, going to be probably the most common. But, you know, really when it comes down to quality, for what the upper receiver is required to do, I don't know that much in the way of uh, the things that we've discussed are going to affect the performance of the rifle uh, in its, its purest sense. Uh, they'll affect the aesthetics. They'll affect things like weight. Um, they'll affect things like perhaps durability, life. Uh, you know, these are all intangibles are really kind of hard to put a finger on because, frankly, I don't know uh, anybody in my recreational sphere who uses one of these rifles as hard as those individuals that I've known in the military sphere. And in the military sphere, these components um, hold up. And mind you, these are the ones that are provided in the historical past by the lowest bidder. So I, I don't know that you can say that those are always the highest quality. Now, certainly, they're are a whole lot of opinions, and I don't know that any of them is a wrong opinion. I think it just all depends. It's a great big gray area there. So, you know, once again, it goes back to the idea of finding the things that are important to you, finding the people that you trust when you're asking questions, and just sort it out for yourself. You know, I think the final factor to remember on a receiver is cost. When it comes down to it, I think most receivers uh, are typically not looked at as being a big part of the cost component of a rifle. Some people like to have, you know, matched uppers and lowers, but I think by and large, most of the times I see an upper receiver, it just has a standard form factor, you know, piece of aluminum. And not much thought has gone into it unless you're talking a customized manufacturer. So um, I guess take that for what it's worth uh, with a grain of salt and, uh, you know, be an informed consumer. But there are a lot of options out there for you. And I do think that you're going to be able to find something that you'll be satisfied with. 
And so just to ask one of the stupid newbie questions, I, I know this is one of the things whenever I heard you guys first started talking about it, the word receiver. Um, of course, I think I probably can t- probably can kind of figure out what it means. But read um, for those listeners who may never have really put anything together, who may not even know what part that receiver is. Can you kind of describe what that is for the true, true newbies, newbies that might be out there listening? Well, you're going to have two receivers. And, of course, in part one, we talked about the lower receiver. And mm-hmm. the upper receiver would be a piece of aluminum formed in such a way that uh, two lugs recess into the lower receiver. And those lugs are trapped by the pivot pin and the rear takedown pin. And so mm-hmm. as those two pins are recessed back into their, I guess, deployed positions, the upper receiver is tightly mated to the lower. Now, the upper receiver is going to be the mounting point for your handguard. It's going to mm-hmm. be the mounting point. Well, no, let me rephrase it's not that. The handguard. Yeah. It's the mounting point for your barrel. And yep. the barrel nut is typically the mounting point for your handguard. And so the bolt carrier group is going to recess into the internal compartment of the upper receiver and the bolt will mate to the barrel extension which has a I think it's a 6 or an 8 star lug configuration Um, and so right at that point where your upper receiver has a uh, circular hole and a lip with threads on the exterior part. That is where the rifle comes together. That's where your uh, barrel nut holds the barrel. That's where your handguard is attached. That's the space through which your bolt is going to seat into the barrel extension. And in that small defined area is where all of the, you know, explosive power and violence of any, you know, ignited uh, munition is going to go off. So every round as it detonates is going to be exerting all of its forces initially right in that area. So the barrel and its chamber typically absorb most of that force. Uh, you've got a bolt carrier group that's going to be riding back along that internal space of the upper receiver uh, through the... Um, the receiver extension on the lower where that spring and buffer are going to absorb the shock and bring the bolt uh, back forward and into battery. So that upper receiver is important, but it's a very static piece. It doesn't move. It doesn't have any parts on it that move except for a dust cover and a forward assist. It is everything that is within it and attached to it that is performing some other function that's critical to the rifle. So I think that may very well be why it's not given a great deal of thought when people are putting them together or when designers are creating uh, new receiver combinations. Um, but, you know, uh, I think that with the increase in manufacturing uh, of custom uh, receivers, I think you're seeing some movement into a space where those receivers, the upper receivers, are getting a little more attention. So, Anthony, does that describe oh, yeah. it for you? 
Oh yeah, <clears throat> for sure. All right. Well, so tell me when it comes to barrels, what are your, what are your biggest newbie concerns? Um, how do you pick a barrel for your intended use? Um, I know some of the stuff we've talked about, you know, uh, um, making sure your twist rate fits, um, the length of your barrel. And to be honest, I don't remember those rules. Um, so that might be something we, we probably want to cover. Cause I know you've talked about that several times in the past. Cause I don't remember how it relates to length, uh, specifically, uh, when it comes to that. Um, and, you know, I know a little bit about, um, the, the gas system about the, the the different lengths of the gas system, but really how all that relates to use. Cause I think that you've talked about that before. Um, and it probably would be a really good thing to refresh my memory on and probably, um, some of our newer listeners on that don't have quite the experience level, um, that some of our other listeners do. So right. what, what's a, what are some of the different use cases and how would you put those things together? Let me go ahead and get started by a, a rundown of what we're looking at here. So, of course, with the, the barrels, we're, we're talking about the, I think the most critical component of a rifle. Uh, you know, certainly the things that we're going to talk about are your barrel length, uh, twist, uh, barrel profile, the gas system that's going to be, uh, installed on the barrel, or I guess, uh, made a part of the barrel. And then I'm going to just speak briefly about the crown. So, as far as length goes, the conventional wisdom has uh, in the past said that to get more accuracy, you want a longer barrel. Uh, there have been some interesting uh, anecdotal uh, examples, some testing. I don't know that there has necessarily been any scientific laboratory testing, but it seems to indicate that you can get excellent accuracy out of shorter barrels than what a lot of the experts used to think. Now, of course, length in terms of the AR platform is defined by what people are going to manufacture for us. So right now, you're going to see um, typically uh, 20-inch barrels, 18-inch barrels, 16-inch barrels, and then you get into the SBR range or the pistol caliber range which I think 14 and a half, uh, any number of combinations under 12 and a half, and then down into some, you know, I think five, six, seven, eight inch barrels. We're going to kind of confine our discussion to just those that you can get without a tax stamp. So we're really talking about a 16 inch barrel or longer. There are some uh, examples of, I've seen 22 inch, 24 inch, Barrels. You're typically talking about barrels that are not chambered for the uh, 5.56 uh, cartridge. I've seen them in some of the barrels designed to be uh, long-range uh, barrels, uh, you know, thousand-yard rifles or uh, service rifle competitions. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what class that would be. But, you know, length uh, is really going to be about how you want to use your rifle. Uh, the carbine length rifles are what we all see in most big box retailers. It's what we see at most internet retailers. It is the most common length barrel that we're going to find out there. And that's a 16-inch barrel. The 16-inch barrel 
is going to have a uh, carbine-length gas system, which is the shorter of the three variations, which are uh, carbine, mid-length, and rifle. So with that configuration, you're going to have uh, a proven rifle. It's going to have proven accuracy, but it's not necessarily going to be something that you're going to try to have reach out to the longer uh, distances. You know, I would say easily 200 yards you can hit with your 16-inch rifle, and I don't think that going past that is going to be difficult. But if you were going to sit down, or if I was going to have you sit down and start, you know, making clover leaves on paper at 300 yards, I don't think I'd have you use a uh, a 16-inch barrel. So one of the things that I would think that you want to consider is if you're going to get that rifle and use it for anything other than a bench, uh, you probably want to figure out how the length of your barrel is going to impact your ability to drive it and wield it in whatever space or confines you're going to find yourself in. And I think that's why you see the shorter barrels in a lot of rifles that, uh, you know, people are using in the, uh, and the military because, you know, they're having to transition from transports to, uh, city streets to, you know, interior spaces and, you know, barrel length is, uh, something that's going to get in the way. Um, as far as twist goes, you know, twist is not so much connected to barrel length as it is to bullet length. Uh, the bigger, heavier bullets are by definition, going to be longer bullets uh, unless they are not your standard lead and, you know, uh, copper bullets. Uh, the reason is, is you have to maintain the same diameter, uh, and if it's going to get heavier, then it's going somewhere, so it's going into the length. And so the higher the twist, the more spin that's going to be in parted on the round, and the more spin that's imparted on the round, the more stable you're going to get it at higher speeds or uh, longer bullets. So you want to pick a twist rate that is going to be adequate for whatever you're going to feed your rifle. Now, the 55 grain and slower bullets are going to probably not be as accurate or effective in the higher twist rate barrels. Uh, one of the things that I've heard people discuss anecdotally are the small varmint rounds, uh, 45 grains, uh, you know, maybe 52, uh, somewhere in that, that sub 55 range. With the higher spin barrels, uh, they have people talk about those projectiles throwing their copper jackets. And so that doesn't make for much of a projectile once it's, uh, done that. So, you know, twist rate is really going to be defined by how you're going to use the rifle and what you're going to feed it. I think that you're probably going to find more common than not uh, are one in nine twist rate barrels uh, in purely commercial uh, recreational settings, and you're going to find the one in seven uh, Barrels when you're getting closer to the manufacturers who are making military grade barrels. 
I am a big fan of the one in seven. It eats up everything I feed it and I feed it the 62 grain and heavier bullets. Um, but it doesn't dislike the 55 grain stuff. So I don't think you can go wrong with a one in seven. A lot of people compromise with a one in eight to kind of get between the two. Um, as far as the profile of a barrel, I think that that's really a taste function. You know, whether it's going to be a heavy barrel, a light barrel, a pencil barrel, whether you're going to have the, you know, standard military profile that imagines that at some point you're going to pay the $1,800 on a tax stamp for a, an M203 grenade launcher, which I'd really like to be able to do, but that's neither here nor there. So profile is something that I think for the most part is going to be a function of probably of how heavy you want, heavy you want your rifle to be. The heavier profiles are going to add more weight. There's more steel. It's going to be, you know, heavier. And uh, that's not really all that much fun when you have to carry it for all that much distance. So uh, profile is uh, really, I think, uh, not going to affect the function of your rifle. So I wouldn't worry too much about it. But uh, certainly a lot of the people that do the high-precision shooting swear by bull barrels because they have the ability to absorb and dissipate a lot of heat without uh, imparting uh, much in the way of deformation. So um, as far as the gas system goes, you know, I think that <clears throat> when it comes to the 16-inch carbine, the carbon-like gas system and all of the things that are going on in that rifle – are pretty much tuned to work. Now, you can increase the length of your gas system, and that's going to tame the recoil of those shorter rifles. A longer gas system is going to change the look of the rifle, because if you're talking about a rifle with a front sight base, uh, mid-length or rifle-length uh, gas system is going to drive that the front sight base closer and closer to the uh, muzzle of your rifle. And then by default, you're going to be required to install a longer handguard. If you're going with a rifle that is uh, carrying a handguard that extends over your gas block, then once again, the further out your gas system goes, the longer your handguard is going to have to be to cover your gas block. So these are just practical considerations. Uh, as far as as I'm concerned, you know, I've got 16-inch, 18-inch, and uh, rifle-length gas systems uh, uh, within my experience level, and, you know, I can't really tell you that there's much of a difference in them, and it's only because... I just don't focus enough on that part of my shooting to notice that there is something substantially different going on. Um, you know, I don't know if that's me, the way I shoot, um, the fact that I'm just a, you know, an old trigger monkey from way back in the day and, uh, these finer points of construction mean very little to me. Um, so, you know, I think really when it comes down to it, if you have an opportunity to try other uh, people's rifles that have a variety of these gas systems on it, you know, see which one you like the best. Um, you know, when it comes to chamber, uh, you know, that's probably an entirely self-contained show in and of itself. 
Um, what I would tell you is that if you're going to get a barrel, um, get the barrel chambered in that um, configuration you think you're going to use. Um, we're not going to get into a discussion of uh, all the different calibers uh, because I think really when it comes down to it, there are too many for us to discuss and have a coherent uh, show. But um, really, when you figure out what that projectile is going to look like, that's going to help you dictate length, twist, gas system, and then profile is just going to be a function of what's available. Um, now, the last thing I want to bring out is the crown. You know, basically the muzzle of the rifle um, as the the bore um, presents to the end of the rifle. It's going to have a crown of some sort. It, it's basically how the machinist finishes the end of the rifle. And, of course, um, there are things that can cause a crown to be damaged, and that can cause things uh, to be in place of the projectile's flight path as it goes down the barrel. And those things can cause your rifle to lose accuracy. I think one of the things I just want to highlight when it comes to a crown is that it's important to, A, protect it. Um, you know, your muzzle devices do that. But it's also, B, important to make sure that it is intact so that you can maintain your accuracy. So if you start having issues with accuracy, I would say your crown is the first thing you want to look at to see if something has nicked it or caused a deformation of some sort. So I think with that, we're going to leave off of barrels, but I think one of the probably next most critical components when we're doing uh, a discussion of this, uh, and as it relates to a barrel, let's talk about a gas block or your front side base. So right now, there is a huge huge assortment of gas blocks and site bases that can be had. Their profiles are, you know, legion. There's just tons of ways to do it. And, you know, uh, Anthony, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't you take a Dremel to your front side base uh, so you could hide it under your handguard? No, um, I actually managed to finally get it off. Yeah, it, it took me quite a while to get those uh, those pins out of the front sight base, but um, <clears throat> I was eventually able to get those pins out and uh, get my front sight base off and put a um, put a separate um, gas block on there, which I'm probably going to do again now when I change my handguard again sometime later this year. So, well, but answer me this: before you got it off, didn't you have to modify it? No, I never actually did have to cut it, but um, uh, I did end up putting it on the concrete with a hammer and um, and a mm. and a punch to be able to get those pins out, which was <laughs> yeah, you know, I didn't mar, yeah, I didn't, I didn't, it didn't bend the barrel, you know, I was very careful with how I placed it. it all the all the you know force was on the actual block itself, but you know, still, <laughs> wow, that thing was not easy to get off. So. When it comes down to it, profile is always going to be a matter of taste and a matter of design yep. sensibility. Uh, yep. You know, I think that it it just bears mentioning that don't give up. Uh, if you can't find what you want, I think you'll find that if you just keep on looking, you'll come across it. Um, you know, I think some people like to have adjustable gas blocks and from where I sit in terms of utility and the price you're going to pay for that feature, I think it's really only relevant if you're going to be talking 
about a rifle capable of firing uh, a suppressed or uh, firing with a suppressor. Uh, without a suppressor, I don't know that those fine adjustments are going to be of all that much value to you. Um, you know, when it comes to uh, creating a rifle that is driven by a piston system, your gas block is going to be a part of that design uh, thought. Uh, it used to be from what I uh, saw in the market, if you wanted a, an aftermarket piston system installed on your AR, then you were going to have something that could not fit under a handguard. I think that is changing. And I'll tell you, I have an Adams Arms uh, low-profile uh, piston uh, on a rifle, and it is uh, very, very nice in the way they've handled fitting it underneath the handguards. So, you know, taking a look at how your gas block is going to be installed and what gas block you're going to use is going to affect a number of other considerations. And so, you know, don't forget to keep that in mind. And I'll just give you an example. If you're going to have a front sight base, you're not going to have a handguard that is going to, you know, project past that front sight base. It's going to be in the way. Now, they do have modified handguards that slip the you know, front sight base into an opening in the handguard. But at the same time, uh, if you're going to have a gas block that's a low-profile gas block and you do get something that's going to go past it in terms of handguards, well, now you're getting you know, close to, in some instances, the muzzle of your rifle. And certainly, you don't ever want to be in a position where you're grabbing a rifle uh, where your fingers might, uh, I guess, cross the, you know, bullet's flight path, because that means you're going to probably, you know, come away without that finger. So, you know, I think that it really is important to fully imagine how you're going to use the rifle when you're kind of going over in your head what pieces you want, what things you're going to look at, uh, purchasing. Because until you really have kind of a, a, a whole view of the rifle in your head, I think that you can find yourself, you know, perpetually going back and forth on how these parts are going to fit together. Um, you know, I think the next thing that I want to touch on is the bolt carrier group. You know, <clears throat> obviously we've got barrels and uh, gas blocks uh, as a, a functional unit. And as those are installed in the rifle, uh, the bolt carrier group is going to have some interaction with that, uh, especially if it's a piston uh, uh, designed bolt carrier. So, um, you know, when it comes to the carriers, uh, you know, once again, we're getting into the, the new age of uh, variation. And one of the things that I am seeing really creep up more and more and more are uh, bolt carrier groups where the carrier is uh, a low mass or a heavier or it's formed in a way that helps it uh, not tilt in its uh, uh, travel. And, you know, all of these design elements um, add to the ability of the carrier to be a much more critical part of the rifle and its functioning. 
you know, I think they can help the rifle get faster. They can help the rifle become, um, more tuned when it comes to the high, uh, performance shooters. Uh, at the end of the day though, if those are not the things that you're going to use the rifle for, I don't know that the bolt carrier group is a place where you need to spend your money. So if you're going to be on a bench and you're going to shoot your rifle for accuracy or develop your marksmanship skills, you don't need a bolt carrier group that's going to be, you know, able to, you know, increase the cyclic rate of your rifle because Basically, you're taking one shot at a time. All you need is a bolt that's going to securely, you know, close your, you know, rifle's chamber and allow you to, you know, fire the next round. How fast that carrier slides back and goes into battery is going to be irrelevant for your purposes. So I know it's nice to look at those things and they are attractive. Uh, They're, you know, part of the form and function of a rifle. But really, when it comes to getting the best bang for your buck on a carrier, I would not go there unless what you're trying to do is tune the rifle or get it to be as close to your skill level as a competitor uh, in, in those arenas. And so, you know, those are things that the Bolt can help you with if that's where you're headed. So I'm just kind of throwing that out there that I don't think you should waste your resources if that's not where you're headed. Uh, coatings, you know, I think really, even though they are things that help the bolt carrier groups uh, in terms of all of those cyclic rate factors and speed and, you know, you know, tuning the rifle and so forth, all those things are involved. Really, I think for any shooter, the coatings that are available today for your bolt carrier groups really are at some, you know, common level going to really help you with maintenance, uh, durability, wear. And it doesn't matter whether you're a competitive shooter or a bench shooter or, you know, a hunter. Uh, those coatings are going to help you regardless of uh, what you're building the rifle for. So... I don't think it's an imprudent move to put that onto the table as far as what you're going to put into a bolt carrier group when you're out there uh, trying to get one. Um, you know, next, I, I just want to touch on the, the charging handle because obviously as a component of the upper and in connection with the bolt carrier group, it is important and the, uh, the Charging handle is something that is now getting, I think, a lot more attention, uh, and you're trying to, see, I think you're seeing some market differentiation. And, you know, we go from, uh, a Mega Arms, uh, charging handle that doesn't have an actuator, doesn't have a, a toggle of any sort, uh, to unlock it to the, and to a personal favorite of mine, the Raptor, which you know allows me as a lefty to really use the rifle in the same way that it allows me to use uh, holding it as a, a right-handed shooter. So, um, and in between, I think those two extremes, there are all flavors of uh, charging handle. Of course, most of you who are right-handed get to use uh, the largest portion of those uh, options to some good effect, but as a lefty, they, they really kind of, uh, 
they don't do anything to help me shoot better. Now you, Anthony, maybe you can, you know, tell me, is there anything that you've seen in that charting handle spectrum that kind of speaks to you or, you know, seems to indicate some uh, benefit by them? Uh, well, to be honest, the charging handle is one thing that I haven't had a chance to put my hands on any other variations other than what's on my stock rifle. Um, I've seen some things out there that look really interesting that look like they would be your, um, you know, to, to access the charging handle. Um, but I haven't seen anything that, um, that I've gone ahead and spent my money on yet. I know it's something that I, I do want to do a little more investigation on. I do want to, uh, work on so i can see where it's 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 not really a requirement i think to do anything fancy with a charging handle i mean it says you what do you i mean well see my problem is being a left-handed shooter the charging handles are useless to me if they don't have some accommodation for my right hand which most of them don't so right but you know, you know, that just puts you in a position where, you know, at any level, um, at any price point, you're able to have the rifle do for you what it needs to do. So when it comes to handguards, what are the things that really have, uh, been speaking to you, Anthony? Um, diameter, um, has been a, a big thing for me. The, the, the stock. Handguard that's on my rifle that most of you guys have uh, probably seen if you've visited our Facebook page. <clears throat> Actually, my rifle it's at the top of the page there. Um, uh, it's rather large in diameter, and um, every rifle that I picked up that's been a competitive rifle has had a much smaller diameter. So it's it's been really really nice uh, to have that, and that has been. It's one of the items that Reed's got down here to discuss his length. Um, mine's a, a shorter. Uh, a shorter piece because I had the uh, the A2 front side on there, um, and you know I've seen uh, with the Marines and whatnot, and some of the other uh, shooting positions, they actually would have them grab a hold of that front sight to use that. Uh, and since I took that, there's nothing there for me to grab a hold of um, to do any sort of uh, um, stabilization that far down the rifle. So um, you know I'm stuck a little bit further back towards the right on the front of the rifle, which gives me a little bit less control. At least that's the theory, uh, as I understand it anyway. So I'd like to be able to lengthen the handguard a little bit and make it not quite as, um, as large around. All right. Well, let's kind of dive into the handguards then. And so we're going to start off with length. So if we're talking about any rifle that has a standard, uh, front side base, you're probably going to be relegated to the standard, you know, D-ring uh, attached, you know, two-part handguards. You know, I think that there are a number of uh, manufacturers of the standard-looking uh, two-piece handguards. Uh, and, you know, frankly, I've never been able to discern, nor have I ever even bothered looking at them closely enough to discern who it is that makes them. They're basically all the same. Then you have uh, companies like Magpul. And, you know, I think there are probably a few others in that uh, realm that offer the two-piece replacement inserts. And you're going to see that with, um, uh, 
you know, the MOE series. Of course, now we have the Slim series and you've got the, or I guess light series. And then of course you've got M-Lock, uh, uh, accessory components. And so those still are all part of that, you know, I guess universe of two piece handguard, uh, secured by a D ring and a plate, you know, just behind your front side base. But because of the nature of that connection system, you're really only going to have handguards as long as your gas system, and it stops there. So when we get to the the gas blocks that ride underneath handguards, length is essentially a function of your taste and preference. I've seen handguards that go past the end of the barrel. Now, that's all well and good unless you're holding your handguard right next to your muzzle because uh, a little bit of muzzle flash will probably toast your hands pretty good. Yep. Um, yeah, there's a um, there's a tag on Instagram uh, that's going around right now where people are posting pictures of their handguards that are rather lengthy on shorter barrels, and um, the tag is uh, just the tip. <laughs> Well, that's all that comes out is just. <clears throat> we we won't elaborate on that. But. That's just the tip of the barrel that comes out past the length of the handguards. What they're talking about. Um, but you know, length is always going to be a personal preference when we're talking about handguards because you know this is more of an aesthetic uh, choice as much as it is anything else. Uh, you know, when it's a front side base, that's going to limit the length of your. Uh, Rifle handguard. Even then, there are some options that allow you to basically go past it, and you know, basically, it's a cutout in the handguard for your front sight base. You know, whether or not these are choices you'll make is, is is neither here nor there. The point is, is that make the choice that makes the most sense to you. Now, as far as diameter, you know, I run the gamut. You know, I, I like the, like, Midwest Industries makes a really kind of narrow, get, narrow diameter handguard that really is very comfortable to control and drive and handle. And at the same time, I've got a rifle that's got a YHM handguard on it, and that's a very large diameter handguard. For me, diameter is not so much driven by my comfort level, I'll adapt to whatever it is it's going to be. You know, certainly there are preferences. I think I am leaning towards a smaller diameter in terms of preference. However, I have NFA items and I prefer to have my suppressors on my rifle. If I'm going to have my suppressor nest underneath the handguard, the handguard is by default going to have to be a an internal diameter large enough to accommodate that. So when you add the material and the outer diameter is going to be even bigger. So, uh, you know, if, uh, having a suppressor ride underneath the handguard is something that you're looking for as far as a design aesthetic, diameter is something that you're going to have to focus on in terms of that. Now I will tell you <clears throat> that as far as length goes, I would also add that it would be wise to take that into consideration if you're going to rest, uh, a, suppressor or nest a suppressor underneath your handguard. Uh, there's nothing like having a suppressor nesting under a handguard so long that you cannot get the traction on your suppressor to take it off. So 
leave enough suppressor dangling out the end of your handguard so that you can manipulate the suppressor and actually remove it from your rifle. Otherwise, it might very well become semi-permanent. I see you snickering back there, Anthony. (laughs) Maybe just a little bit. Yeah, it's okay. So one of the, the, I think, the really big issues in constructing an upper receiver by hand is always going to revolve around the connection point that mates your barrel to the upper receiver and also allows you to mate your handguard to that connection point. We're basically talking a barrel nut. So here's the here's the consideration. That barrel nut, if it's not the standard military barrel nut, is going to be whatever form factor the designers have made. And if that form factor requires a special kind of wrench, you're going to have to buy that tool for that particular installation for that one handguard that you may own. And you may only ever own one handguard. So that means that that tool is going to sit there in your... Uh, tool chest until you decide to take the handguard off or do something else with it. But the point is, is that you're going to have an added cost. You're going to have an added tool. It's just the nature of the beast. Uh, there are some handguards that do try to incorporate use of the old standby uh, barrel nut that you're going to find in most uh, standard ARs. And that barrel nut... Uh, made it to whatever proprietary system the handguard manufacturer has come up with to mate with it, um, can in some ways really create a, an awesome uh, rifle. But, you know, it is something to consider. That connection point is going to be critical. Um, you know, aside from how it's going to be tightened down, uh, when it comes to that connection point, your more often than not, going to have something that will have to be indexed to your upper receiver's uh, gas hole so that your gas tube can travel from your uh, gas block or your front sight base uh, through that barrel nut into your upper receiver. So you're going to have to probably think about the installation in terms of your comfort level and your ability, uh, the availability of whatever tools are necessary so that you don't have a protracted evening of pulling your hair out trying to get that thing to line up. Um, so I think that's fair enough mentioning for that. Um, you know, I think the last thing to take into consideration when we're talking about hand guards are going to be the accessory attachment points. You know, we started off back in the day, and it were, you know, handguards had quad rails. They had four rails, uh, Picatinny rail space, and you attach stuff to them. Well, and then everybody wanted to attach things at off angles and off sites, and so people made a great many, you know, pieces of kit to give you the different ways to attach things at different angles and dimensions and whatever the case may be. Well, Obviously, any of you guys that are, you know, at the very least looking at the Internet are aware we've got a plethora, a huge number of new ways to attach things to your rail. So after the uh, quad rails uh, kind of went out, you know, what you had are 
proprietary systems where they'd sell you a length of rail, a couple of screws to attach to whatever, you know, milled uh, uh, and tapped hole they had on the side of their uh, handguard or uh, the pre-MLOC uh, Magpul systems, which would basically attach things through slits and the components um, all the way to the, you know, as I said, M-Lock um, from Magpul. And KeyMod, which is kind of like an open source industry approach to having things attached. So with all of those choices, I would say that the only thing that you really need to concern yourself with are, one, what do you want to attach to your rifle? And two, does your proprietary attachment system include those accessories that will attach those things to your rifle? You know, availability is a big factor. You know, of course, the beginning of uh, the key mod uh, wave, I don't think you could very easily find a lot of the accessory pieces because they either hadn't been put into market in production or... Um, wherever they were being sold, they were always out of stock because, once again, you know, they were the only game in town and everybody wanted that thing. So, you know, if you want to attach, uh, you know, a flashlight and a, uh, uh, grip underneath your rail, you know, figure out which connection, uh, accessory attachment, uh, system is going to work for those two things you need. But, the problem is, is that that really kind of forces you to imagine every way you might use your rifle, and that may not necessarily uh, be the most uh, efficient way to imagine or conceptualize a build. So, you know, I don't know how you make that any easier. Anthony, have you got any thoughts? Do you do you flip a coin whether you're going to go with MLOC or KeyMod, or what have you been thinking in terms of that argument? Well, you know, I know that um, Magpul has plans, if they have not already, to release their MLOC specs um, to the world, uh, so that uh, so that everybody can produce MLOC parts. Um, if that hasn't already happened, so I, I think that we'll see. You know, if we'll start to see tons of MLOC stuff out there. Magpul's such a huge name, uh, and they're going to be backing their products at the same time. Um, to be honest. What it, most of the people that I've talked to, and I've, I've talked to a lot of people, this is one of the questions that I've asked uh, a lot of different people when I've, I've been around at um, different events and whatnot. They've said, well, yeah, I'm, I'm going to get, I've either got or going to get this system or that system, but all I'm going to do is get one of those little small pieces of Picatinny and put on there. So they're just using it to attach Picatinny and then using um, whatever existing Picatinny parts they already have to attach. So Right. Well, when it comes down to it, if you are a first-time builder, then sky's the limit for you because you have not been limited by all of your other uh, 80 and 90 and $100 connection accessory point purchases. Yep. So, Very true. Um, you know, I think that covers a lot of the basics for the handguards. You know, once again, like all things, it's going to be a function of a holistic view of what it is you're building and how you're going to use it. Um, you know, so with that in mind, um, I don't know that there's much more that we can help you with as far as handguards. Um, you know, when it comes to the muzzle device, 
you know, we're really talking about four main things. And so I'm going to try to break these down in terms of what they do so that you can make the most informed choice. Um, what you're going to see in most production rifles and what you're probably going to spend the least amount of money on is a flash hider. It is basically designed to divert the flash of the um, powder burning um, every time you fire the device um, you know, from obscuring your vision. Um, you know, whether or not that is the case, I don't know. Um, I don't know that there's any real way to hide the flash of your rifle, not in a counter-sniper sense of the, the term. Uh, but, you know, maybe at one point that was uh, some part of what uh, they were trying to design into the flash hider. Um, you know, frankly, I don't know that I even have a single flash hider on any of my rifles at this point. And uh, so, you know, with that, you know, the next three muzzle devices are each in and of themselves very unique to a particular function. So a compensator as part of your barrel is only designed to basically keep the barrel from flipping. You have ports that are machined into your compensator that are designed to direct the forces that are leaving the barrel in a way that will push the barrel down and keep it from rising. So that barrel rise, that barrel jump, whatever you want to term it, the compensator is designed to eliminate or minimize that jump. Now, that is different when we talk about a brake. A muzzle brake is designed to reduce recoil. It is designed to mitigate the forces that are going to drive the rifle back into your, your shoulder. So, you know, as a, a 5.56 shooter, predominantly when it comes to the platform, when you have that much of a buffer and a spring and, you know, the mass of your bolt carrier group um, taming the recoil, you know, it's nothing like, a 243. It's nothing like a 7 millimeter magnum. It's nothing like a 300 Weatherby magnum. Those things have recoil. And AR, by comparison, just doesn't. Now, it does move. There are, you know, the forces of physics at play. So brakes and compensators do their job. Um, but the rifle is already a dream to shoot. So you choose one of those because you're looking for a particular uh, piece of assistance, you know, the, the individual who's looking for quick follow-up shots is probably going to go for a break because he wants that, um, barrel of the rifle to move as little as possible after each round. You know, if you're talking a bench guy, um, he's probably going to be using a compensator. I don't know necessarily why. That's just my gut reaction. So, you know, when it comes to those two, I think really if you're going to spend the money or invest the money, which $100 plus is a pretty reasonable starting point for a break or a compensator, 
versus a twelve dollar you know birdcage flash hider. I, I would only spend that money if you really are looking for it to do those things for you. It, you know, if whatever the recoil or the you know jump is is enough to distract you or make shooting unpleasant, then by all means. Um, and you know, if you're looking for you know the cool factor, you know, don't get me wrong, they're nice, but you know, know that that's what you're buying it for and not for anything that's really going to help you uh, as a shooter. Uh, I think the fourth muzzle device that's worth mentioning are the silencer attachments. So to the degree that you're going to begin collecting tax stamps, um, if you're buying a suppressor for an AR, you're more than likely going to have an attachment point on that AR. Now, if you have multiple ARs, you may buy multiple, you know, the silencer attachment points uh, and have them on a bunch of different rifles. Uh, really, it's your preference. Uh, but, you know, the problem is, is that uh, for the most part, the silencers do not have uh, muzzle devices that are, you know, QD, easy on, easy off. You know, those muzzle devices are going to be, you know, pretty much on the rifle for the duration until you decide that you're not going to make that rifle compatible with whatever suppressor you have. So that, of course, means that if you're going to have a uh, muzzle device for your silencer attachment or a silencer attachment that's a muzzle device, you're going to give up some of the things that a brake might offer or a compensator might offer because, in my experience, there is no one device that accomplishes all of the tasks um, that you would be looking for. So, um, you know, I think that covers the, you know, the breadth of the subject, but not the depth, because on top of all of those considerations, there is really some question about whether or not there is empirical data to support some of the claims that the devices make versus anecdotal experience. And, you know, I think that there is a difference between what, you know, some device that will measure a force, uh, there's a difference between what that means and what it means to shoulder a rifle and shoot it and feel that what's happening because of the new muzzle device is making it more pleasant or making it a uh, more competitive uh, rifle or making it, you know, do the thing that you're seeking. You know, certainly there are a lot of things that uh, uh, there isn't much in the way of uh, data uh, that can be supported, but people will sure swear up and down about how great it is. And you know what? I don't think that that's a bad thing. You just have to know that what they swear about by may not be what you swear by. Um, so when it comes to the muzzle devices, really, you know, I think the thing to remember is that it's usually a pretty expensive piece of kit. And so I would only suggest you buy a muzzle device because it is do something, doing something that you very specifically need it to do. Um, you're willing to spend the money regardless of whether it does what it needs to do or you're going to spend the time discovering what device makes the most sense for you. I mean, otherwise, don't just get the 
you know, device of the moment that's on sale from wherever, do some homework. You know, once again, it goes back to that group of friends and colleagues that shoot all the time. Uh, I guarantee you that you get most of your buddies together and they all have the story about the thing they bought that didn't do anything or that was worthless or was the biggest waste of their money. And uh, those are the things that you probably want to avoid. So those are the things that will help you at all stages of building your own upper receiver. Um, and because it's that group that I think really is worth relying on for those very straightforward things. Um, so with that, I think we've uh, pretty much uh, talked this one to death, Anthony. Any thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, we've covered all the, the basic parts of an upper receiver, what they are and um, their their basic use and basic considerations. That's uh, about it for what we were talking about doing for this show. All right. Well, as always, we want you guys to write in and help us out if we need to correct anything. Help us out if you have suggestions or opinions. Help us out if you have questions about what we've talked about so that we can make it clearer for you. And, of course, we'd be happy to make suggestions if you guys have any of those questions. But I think the number one thing to remember is you are the consumer. Inform yourself. That's the only way that you will make these choices and be happy. So I think that does it. Well, Very good. Anthony, what do we have going on with Otis Technology this week? So we've had uh, our giveaways running with Otis, uh, as um, we'll talk about here in just a second, um, running over on Instagram. And that is right, folks. The uh, fine folks over at Otis Technology have sent us a mountain of rifle maintenance tools and cleaning kits for AR-15s and AR-10s. We've been tasked with giving them all away. That's a lot of gear that Reed is sitting on over at his house. So watch for the special posts over on Facebook and on Instagram. May is Instagram, folks. So if you don't have an Instagram account, go over to Instagram.com or grab the Instagram app on your iPhone and create one to get a chance to win some of the awesome products made by Otis Technology. We're giving away a complete MSR cleaning kit in either 5.56 or 7.62 in the middle of each month up until Christmas when we'll give away a complete Otis Technology Elite cleaning system to one lucky winner. During the alternating weeks, we'll be giving away a host of Otis tools and cleaning supplies. So don't forget, guys, go over to Instagram uh, during this month and follow the R15 podcast. Check out our posts there. You'll see the instructions for how to enter. And back when we finish May, when we head back over into June, we'll be headed back over onto Facebook, and you'll be able to like and share uh, posts there to enter the weekly contests again. Our winner this week is Lynn Ditchtoll. So, Lynn, we've made a post over to you uh, on Instagram and are waiting for information to be able to ship your uh, goodies to you. So, Lynn Ditchell, be sure to get back in touch with us uh, through Instagram, and we will make sure we get the, uh, the goodish goodies from Otis Technology out to you. Oh, and uh, also, if we have butchered your name, Lynn, we would love for you to send in the phonetic spelling so that we can know how to pronounce it as we uh, go on. And that if it was butchered as completely Reed's fault, he got jumped in and did like a puppet and made my mouth move. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's my fault. It's my fault. I, and if I did it wrong, I apologize. If I did it right, 
I, I can, I don't know. Take all the credit. I did it right. There you go. All right. So, uh, moving on to feedback, uh, we're going to try to cover this pretty quickly, but, uh, we want to let you know that Hugh P wrote in and he says that we should check out the AXTS Talon safety selectors. Says it's the same company that makes the Raptor charging handles that I am so fond of. But he indicates that basically they're 45 degree and, uh, apparently will work in any lower receiver because they also have the ability to be converted to a standard 90 degree selector by rotating the barrel 180 degrees. So, uh, he says he used to have the bad sec, uh, he has the bad sectors. I think he was talking about hard drives. No, I think he had the uh, BAD uh, selectors, uh, but right. have since switched over to the AXDS ones on all of his ARs. Uh, you know, Hugh, you could always send in any of those old uh, BAD selectors to the show, and you know, that might get you some credit with the guys upstairs. Just saying. Email <laughs> me if you want an address. Anyways, no. So he says, also, uh, can you guys do a podcast on linear compensators and the current crop of muzzle device uh, covers that mitigate side blast that accompanies compensators? Uh, so he gave a couple of examples, uh, Kinetitech, uh, Lantac BMD, Surefire Blast Diffuser, uh, Griffin Armament Blast Shield. And he says, uh, it would be great to hear the pros and cons as well as how the covers change the effectiveness of the muzzle devices. So keep up the great work. Hugh, thanks for writing in. Uh, let's see. Bob L. wrote in and he says, read another common and inexpensive method to secure or to install. He didn't write this, but it's what he's talking about to install the, uh, uh, I guess it's the uh, front uh, detent and spring on the uh, uh, front pivot pin, uh, is to use a clevis pin to prevent launching the spring. And I don't know how many of you know what a clevis pin is, but um, if you have a uh, cotter pin uh, and uh, the clevis pin is what the cotter pin basically attaches to, so uh, if you uh, have a trailer hitch, uh, the bar that connects the hitch to your, uh, ball, uh, is secured by a little cutter, a little pin that, uh, I guess the thick heavy metal part that does the connecting is the clevis pin. In any case, um, I took a look at what Bob uh, sent in, uh, it links, uh, uh, to a image and it, it really does, uh, appear that it, it would be quite useful. And uh, just FYI, I put a link in the show notes for what a clevis pin uh, goes for at Granger. I don't know what all they sell, but I think maybe the question is what don't they sell. But anyways, uh, there are clevis pins. Uh, you can buy 10 clevis pins for the same cost as the Brownells tool. However, I don't know that they have 100% lifetime satisfaction guarantee, nor do I think they have free shipping. So <laughs> uh, that being the case, uh, Bob. Thank you for your uh, input. That's some serious uh, out-of-the-box thinking. So if you have one of those in your toolkit at home, uh, you don't have to get anywhere to get your uh, pen into tent installed. 
So then uh, Dan V finally writes in. He says, uh, thanks for the shout-out on your show last week. I was a guy that recommended adding the search function to your site to help other listeners find episodes. He says, wow, should something that helpful be recognized? Well, of course, of course, Dan. So it says, gee, you guys mentioned uh, air clean kits pile to the sky at the secret headquarters. He says, feel free to send one along to me. Uh make more space for your quality programming. Well, you know, Dan, we would have, but you didn't include your address. And unfortunately, management has come down on us since then, so I guess that's not going to happen. But you still can uh, get involved in the show. So, Anthony, uh, just let's touch on how people are going to sign up for this coming week's uh, giveaway. Yes, um, so if you're going to sign up for Otis, uh, the giveaway, we do have a, it's, you can find the instructions on a post on our Facebook page. Um, and you'll also find, um, uh, Instagram. You'll find our post over on Instagram with instructions there. Basically, you will download a, uh, another app, um, on your phone to repost the post that we make. Um, there are several different apps out there and we, we've included some of those in the comments of our post. So you can repost that post, like our post, like our, um, and follow us on Instagram, and that's it. That'll get you entered. And we randomly pick from those people that have uh, shared that, basically reposted and shared uh, that post and liked our page and liked that post. So they have to do all three things, is that correct? Yes, they need to like the post, follow us on Instagram, and reshare. It's very similar to what we did on Facebook where we asked people to like our page, like the Otis page, and share the um, the post that we were posting. All right. Well, you know, I know that some of our listeners are not computer guys. They're not real comfortable with what computers do. So you know what? That's right. And we will be taking, we will be taking them into account in a future month, most certainly. I think we need to make sure that they have a way of sending someone a postcard. You got it, man. We will. And of course, it's going to have to have a very specific thing on it. Well, we haven't decided what, but you know, by golly, if you aren't going to use the easiest modern invention to communicate <laughs> in the world with us, then we're going to make you have to work a little bit for your, your entry. So have no fear. We will make room for all of you guys that, uh, uh, eschew the, uh, wonders and miracles of the modern age, uh, and long for a day when Snails delivered mail in any case. <laughs> you bet. Um, why don't you go ahead and uh, wrap up these last couple of pieces here since uh, this is your baby. You betcha. So we do have uh, several more pieces on Instagram. And, guys, we're getting a lot of feedback on Instagram. I'm loving it. So I just handpicked a few things. Um, I did pull one. Uh, believe it or not, I pulled this uh, after. Um, didn't even realize this was there, so don't think anything weird was going on. This was actually pulled after the winner was uh, was announced. So this is from Lynn Ditchell, our, our winner this week. So uh, Lynn's post is up here, and if you guys go to uh, ar15podcast.com and take a look at the show notes for this episode, episode 125, you can see these pictures that we're talking about here. And Lynn has a picture here with two parts to it. One is a before with his... Uh, a rifle in parts and pieces. He's even got all of his, looks like the lower parts kit and everything still in the little baggies. Um, all in pieces laying out nice and neat on a, on a nice surface there for us. And then afterwards, he's got the fully assembled rifle. So looks like he did a good job there, doesn't he, Reed? He sure did. 
Yep. That was a friend's build. He said he helped put a, a friend put that build together. So that's a good job there. Very good. Um, there were a couple of pictures that came through this. I think this is a company, uh, Enzo Rifle Works that, uh, we were tagged in that are just really just beautiful shots. Um, one is, um, up close picture of, does that look like that is a, uh, a wooden, um, grip down there, Reed? It is. Um, well, and a nice bag. It looks like. Yeah, I've seen this particular grip all over the internet, and and you know, you're going to find it. I think in rifles that are intended to reach out and really touch something from a distance. But uh, right off the top of my head, I couldn't tell you uh, if it has a stylistic name or particular manufacturer. Yeah, but it's a it's a sweet looking rifle they have up there. And that's it awesome, is. awesome uh, machine work on the upper and lower. That's what I was thinking. It's gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. You guys should really take a look uh, at that picture. And then we've got a a shot. Looks like um, probably late in the day of a muzzle flash. That is uh, just a beautiful shot. Somebody looks like they're probably prone, taking a long distance shot. Field of wheat in the background uh, with the muzzle flash, and you see the the sparks. I guess that's I guess that sparks are just um, something coming off there. Uh, Flying out from the muzzle, you see that there, read in the picture, like little bits of comet <sighs> flying oh, out. I, I think that's a bullet. <laughs> no, I'm not coming. I'll read, Joker. <laughs> uh, it's coming. It's coming out like left and right, uh, up and down, whatnot. Oh, so. that's fire. Yeah, that's fire coming out of the just out fire. Of the, uh, just fire. Gotcha. Yeah, just fire. I, it's a really just fire. It just won't burn. Nothing like that. It's a really neat picture. Uh, really enjoyed that one. Thank you guys for posting that one to us. Uh, and our, one of our regular commenters, um, we had, again, we had a lot more pictures than this, but, uh, one of our regular guys sent in, Dylan HK sent in, upgrade, upgrade, upgrade on the best day of the week too. Now it's time for some range time. Thanks for the excellent article on muzzle devices from, uh, at gun truth, which is another uh, article, another, um, Instagram page that he follows. And he's got a picture of, um, a brake that he was putting on, a muzzle brake that he's putting on and, um, his, uh, Armor's tool. Yep, and that's precision armament. Uh, that particular muzzle device is getting high marks and high praise uh, when it's talking about uh, brakes. So yes, I have seen that. Mm-hmm. Heard that. Very good. And the uh, last piece we have today from Instagram feedback is from Big Biller. Uh, this was kind of a funny piece here. For some reason, I left laughing out loud myself by myself. Connecting with 148 and 248 yard steel targets through iron sights with rusty Tula 223 through the M&P consistently with ease was apparently humorous. Yeah, I guess you had to be there. <laughs> As Reed said, I thought that was interesting. His distance is there, 148 and 248. Yeah. Uh, Big Miller, send us, send us an explanation for those specific distances. Yeah, or maybe that's just when you know Big Biller got tired of walking out. There you go. All right. That's where they were at his range. Well, guys, uh, it's another great show. I think next week we're going to tackle what it is to assemble uh, an upper receiver. Um, Yes. And so I think we'll wrap up the series with a discussion of, you know, what your shop is going to need. Uh, if you were going to have the completely tricked out uh, uh, assembly tools available, and we might discuss some alternatives and some 
shortcuts or hacks that you might be able to use to get your build underway without those. In the meantime, um, let us know if you have any questions, and we should be able to bring that up into our fifth episode or perhaps maybe have a sixth of just listener feedback talking about what they need to do in their next build. So uh, I guess with that, Anthony, why don't you read us out? You bet. As always, guys, send us any questions or comments to feedback at AR15podcast.com. You can send us a recorded voicemail by using the SpeakPipe plugin on the right-hand side of the AR15 Podcast website. That's AR15podcast.com. Subscribe and listen to the AR15 Podcast for free in iTunes or on Stitcher. And leave us a review on either or of those, whichever one you happen to use, because that helps us place higher in searches and helps us get more listeners, which helps us get better content for you guys. Share your pics with us on Instagram. Uh, you can tag us at AR15Podcast or tag your pictures with hashtag AR15Podcast either way, and we'll try to grab them and include them in the show. Follow us at Google+. Plus. We're on YouTube, and you can watch us live by following us and on our, for our announcements over on Facebook as well. You can find us at Google+, Plus at plus.google.com forward slash plus sign AR15Podcast, or YouTube at youtube.com forward slash C forward slash AR15Podcast, and facebook.com, all the same kind of thing, facebook.com forward slash AR15Podcast. And guys, if you haven't checked it out, there are tons of other podcasts on the Firearms Radio Network, which is our parent company. So run over to firearmsradio.tv, and check out other podcasts there and see what else you'd like. Guaranteed, you will find several other things that you'd be interested in. And we cannot be bringing the show to you. We cannot bring the show to you without the help of our sponsors, Brownells. You can go to Brownells and use our affiliate link so that whenever you buy your purchases at Brownells, we do get a little teeny tiny piece of that pie. That's AR15podcast.com forward slash parts for all of your AR15 parts or any other thing. Uh, related to firearms that you might be looking to purchase. And for everything else that's not related to that or something that you might decide to buy on Amazon anyway, uh, there is Amazon.com, and we do have an affiliate link for that as well. That affiliate link, if you are going to Amazon to purchase anything, is firearmsradio.tv forward slash Amazon. So, guys, make sure you use that, and that, again, does not affect your price, but does give us just a little teeny tiny piece and helps us pay the bills, keep the servers running, and make sure we can bring you guys good content. All right. Well, listeners, we want to thank you for joining us again. Uh, we want to encourage you to write in and talk with us and let you know that we really do appreciate and enjoy every time that we get a chance to just kind of get things uh, rolling with new questions and trying to help people out. Obviously, we have a huge resource of very knowledgeable listeners who – Build rifles, and if uh, their version of uh, black rifle disease is anywhere like mine, they haven't stopped building yet. So uh, we want to encourage you guys to always uh, keep us uh, uh, on the straight and level and make sure that we're getting it right. So with that, I guess we will let you all go once again, and we'll see you next week.
Are you looking for an extraordinary daily carry option? Look no further. Car Arms is giving away a P9 with night sights right here on the Firearms Radio Network. It's Car's EDC drawing. To enter, simply become a Patreon of any Firearms Radio Network show. Current patrons are automatically entered. But wait, there's more. Keybar, Hellbent Holsters, Alien Gear Holsters, Precision Ear, and more have ponied up to enhance your EDC loadout. See all of these awesome prizes and more ways to enter at firearmsradio.tv slash EDC. This has been a production of the Firearms Radio Network. You can find more information at firearmsradio.tv.